Thanks for being with us on this Saturday morning. Well, you might have heard the federal fall economic statement was released this past week, and there's been a fair amount of reaction to it, the amount of spending and the size of the deficit. Well, Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and joins us now to talk more about this. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, you're welcome. Good morning, Jill. What's your first response to uh, the economic, uh, the fall economic statement? Well, the thing that struck us, uh, first of all, Jill, was the fact that the deficit is not being dealt with at all. It's actually going to be larger next year. Um, and you contrast to the fact that they were quite clear, this government, when they were running for office, they would balance it next year. The prime minister even went so far as to say it was cast in stone that they would balance the budget. And yet here we are now, three years later, um, no sign of balancing. Not only are they not going to balance as they promised, um, they, they actually don't even have a plan at all to get back to balance. So there's no sort of couple years from now plan to get back. We find that very troubling because, of course, borrowed money is money that we can't spend on other things. And it's money that we also have to pay interest on. When it's numbers that are just so large as well, it's even a bit difficult to wrap your head around the $688 billion this fiscal year uh, to climb to or sorry, $765 billion by 2023-24. It's just such large numbers that we're dealing with. Yeah, you know, some people are arguing it's no big deal because the economy is growing. Um, but I sort of liken that to saying if you carry a balance in your credit card, uh, it's no big deal as long as you your income goes up. But of course, you're still wasting money by paying interest there that you don't need to pay. Um, it, they are big numbers, as you say, and I think that's the reason sometimes uh, politicians can get away with it. But I would put it this way for context. The amount that we spend on interest each year is more than we spend on the military. That's how much money we spend uh, paying debt just at the federal level in this country. Uh, what do you say then to uh, some of the reasons given in that uh, the finance minister, uh, Bill Morneau, uh, said that uh, Canada has a very strong economic performance right now, but saying that it's because of uh, things like unpredictable oil prices. It's become a, because of these uh, trade disputes and that uh, that we need to be wary of that or we need to, to not perhaps be as bold as we could. Well, actually, they're trying to have it both ways on this, Jill. They're talking about how the economy is doing well. It is doing well, um, but that's exactly the reason they should be able to balance the budget now. Uh, most of the economic theory behind deficits says that when the economy is doing poorly, you need to spend to sort of boost the economy. Um, and then when times are good, you can afford to scale it back and save up for the next rainy day. They haven't done that. Uh, we're in the good times now. They've essentially thrown more gasoline on the fire. And while I do welcome, actually, some of the measures they brought in here, because of the tax cuts south of the border, I think they did need to make some of these changes in order to make sure Canadian business stay competitive. Uh, but what they didn't do was look at anywhere they could cut spending back. Um, you know, the reality is if you're running a $300 billion budget and you can't find anything where you think you could spend a little bit less, I, I don't think you're really doing it right. And when you talk about uh, the areas where they, they did do some positive things, uh, are you talking about uh, businesses as far as uh, manufacturers, uh, the cost of machinery, equipment, that kind of thing? Yeah, the write-offs. I mean, for folks who aren't familiar, when Donald Trump came into power south of the border, they brought in a very, very large business tax cut, actually the biggest in American history. Uh, Canada used to have very good uh, competitive tax rates. Those Trump tax changes really changed the game and put us in a really bad spot in terms of competitiveness. So I, I'm glad the government took some steps there. I think they deserve some credit for that. But there's still a long way to go on other things, including uh, the deficit and including finding ways just to, to cut back on spending. And although that was one of the criticisms, too, or, or something that was pointed out also saying that uh, the deficit is there, it's growing, and uh, we're kind of using that to finance corporations, we're using that to finance uh, these other companies uh, kind of on the backs of that. 
Yeah, look, and, and I think the approach they took could have been better. You know, we're a group that supports, we, we don't support sort of boutique picking and choosing businesses and industries that should get special treatment. If you're going to cut taxes, cut the rate so that any business and industry can benefit. Um, they focused on a few industries, manufacturing is one, media is another one that's got a lot of attention in this, this uh, update. Um, we think that's a dangerous approach because the government inevitably has to start playing favorites. And we just don't think that's fair to, to folks who work in other industries. Uh, and you're right, the journalism one, and perhaps because I work in that industry, uh, and it's certainly one that we've been talking about uh, that is sticking out, because it is different. I think the, journalists, uh, the journalism is different is a different industry than uh, when we're talking about straight-up manufacturing or, or something else like that. Sure. And the challenge with journalism is that arguably it's so important, uh, the fact that the fact that uh, government intervention, it could jeopardize that independence. Right. I think, uh, you know, I, I certainly spend all my days dealing with folks like yourself in the press. And I recognize there's challenges in the industry and you certainly don't want to see people lose jobs. But the difficulty, of course, is uh, if you have, for example, a fund where the government gets to decide, gets to decide which news outlets get the money, um, you, you sort of got a conflict of interest there in terms of ensuring that you don't have any uh, any special favor is being done. Uh, yeah, it would seem uh, what would make sense was is, is either if you're going to do that, then a lot uh, the equal amount of money to each or none at all. Well, yeah, and that, that this is where, this is the problem we get into, right? Uh, I, I again, I, re- I understand that it's a challenging time for folks in the industry, and I don't want to down, downplay that at all. But uh, when governments step in, there are consequences of that as well. And certainly, from the folks I've spoken to uh, around town who are journalists here, they welcome the help, but they're also very nervous about what it does to to sort of you know, the, at least the appearance of their objectivity. Uh, so, when you look at the number then as well that the debt is expected to grow uh, by ninety six point seven billion dollars uh, by the year 2023-24. I mean, the average Canadian, we look at that and we kind of throw our hands up and say, okay, well, that's the number that we're given. And that's uh, the the route that this government is taking. Uh, What are we, how can we, what, what do we even do about that? Well, look, I think the, the first and most obvious thing that people need to remember, and our group's certainly going to be hammering this home over the next year, is that this government explicitly made a promise and they didn't just not keep it. They broke it in such a way that's going to have long-term consequences. We we are not going to be able to pay for other things. Think of any of the other things that, uh, that you expect to get out of your taxes, better schools, better roads, better hospitals. This is money we're not going to have anymore to the tune of $150 billion, in fact, by the time we get to 2022. Um, and, and, you know, as I say, these are big numbers. A lot of people sort of say, well, you know, $10 billion, $50 billion, what's the difference? Think of how much money we'd spend on the armed forces. That's how much we just spend on the interest. That's not even on the principal. That's just the interest every year on this. Uh, that's something we've got to deal with in the long term. Otherwise, it's going to be our kids and grandkids that end up paying the bill. And do you think we will see that? Because that is where uh, people in uh, local communities and that actually see it when you talk about infrastructure projects, because the government has been very good about uh, visiting, doing uh, these big flashy events, uh, talking about the funding that they're putting into projects, uh, be it uh, uh, LRT or I guess suppose now SkyTrain in Surrey, uh, different projects in Metro Vancouver, uh, but actually getting those shovels in the ground and actually getting those projects off the ground is a whole different thing. Absolutely. Some of this stuff takes a long time, and that's always the challenge with politics. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the things governments spend money on are the things you can they, they do it because you can see it, and it's better for them politically, even if something that's not as flashy and that's long-term would probably be the better expense. I just think the challenge right now this government has, Jill, is there's a lot of Canadians that they, they're paying their taxes because they want to get good value for their money. They expect good value for the taxes they pay. They don't feel they're getting that as it is. They open the, the, the newspaper or go online, and they see stories of waste left, right, and center. Um, and, you know, 
as long as that continues, people are going to be very reluctant to trust governments to spend their money well. And frankly, they're going to be very upset when governments come back asking for more. Uh, do you think that there will be any shifting in public opinion when people look at the numbers connected with the, pin, uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline and that well, hard to say profit because they, they paid four and a half billion for it, but that they're on track to learn or to earn, sorry, what is it, $200 million annually? Yeah, look, uh, people don't realize they didn't just the government didn't just buy the expansion. They bought the existing pipeline. So, of course, if you buy an asset that's already in operation, there's going to be revenue. That's good. I mean, that means we, we're losing less money. Um, and but I think the important thing, uh, you know, we didn't support for the record. We didn't support taxpayers having to buy this pipeline. But now that they've bought it, we want them to get the expansion built and sell it so taxpayers can, you know, at the very least, if not make a, a profit, uh, at least lose a lot less. All right. Well, we will leave it there. I'm sure uh, there's uh, much, much more on this, but we'll uh, leave it there, Aaron. And thank you again. It's always great to have you on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Well, last weekend on Back on the Beat, you might have heard a story about a shopping mall in Surrey where the accessible parking had been taken out. And that had many people questioning why or how somebody would be allowed to do that. Was it legal to do that? And some new information has come to light. And we now know that starting December 10th, there's going to be a big change to BC's building code. The province is removing the requirement for accessible parking at residential and commercial buildings from the 2018 building code. Instead, it will be shifted and it will become the responsibility of municipalities. And that is raising concerns with the, the, from people that have challenges when it comes to mobility as to whether or not the municipalities have the expertise to make the decisions that will lead to accessibility still being available at various buildings, both commercial and residential. Well, as you likely know, Ben Dooley is the producer of this program, and he also uh, gets around in a wheelchair, and he is on the line with us. This morning to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, good morning, Ben. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I am excellent. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Uh, so, what is your response to this? Because I know you were very involved uh, in the story last weekend as well with John Daly talking about uh, the woman who had raised concerns about the parking in the Surrey Mall uh, being removed. What, are, what, are, what is your take on now? The lear- we're learning that uh, it's going to be shifted to the various municipalities. Well, uh, my take on it is, you know, in the building code, it outlines, you know, what the rules are for every single city, and every single city uh, has to comply about it uh, with it. There's no, you know, difference between uh, a different municipality might have uh, different rules. So it it's outlined um, in the building code what you what you have to do. And as we saw last week with with back on the beat, you know, it. It's up to the cities to make sure that businesses are complying. And the cities, as we've seen with uh, the the story last week, you know, can't can't even handle that, it seems like. And how how important is it? You are somebody who who, uh, gets around uh, with a wheelchair when driving. You would be in a vehicle that has to accommodate that. Uh, How important are accessible parking spots? Well, well, the, the thing about accessible parking spots is, you know, to, to the average Joe, they, they might look like a parking spot that, that, you know, is just close to a place of business. But the, the key difference uh, in an accessible parking spot uh, and, a, and a regular parking spot is they're actually a little bit bigger, which helps tremendously. Uh, you know, some people might have a, a lift in, in their vehicle uh, that they need to use to get their wheelchair out of the, their vehicle. Some people transfer from their vehicle 
uh, to to their wheelchair. And with a regular parking spot, there's just not enough room to get that lift or get your wheelchair in between uh, a vehicle that's parked next to you and your own vehicle. But with a wheelchair parking stall, uh, you know, there's big, it, there's more room, and it allows for, for the space to do the things that you need to do to get out of your vehicle. Have you been in situations then when you've been either in the spots that, that you, you haven't been able to get in and out of the vehicle or it's been very difficult? You know, it's a common practice where, where you know, I'll get to King George Skytrain Station and, my, and I have a ride picking me up on my, on my way home from work. And, you know, there's somebody who very clearly doesn't need the accessible parking stall and, you know, doesn't have an accessible parking pass who likely just thinks, you know, I'm just going to be here for five minutes and it's, it's not a big deal, and then uh, whoever is uh, giving me a ride has to, you know, confront this person and ask them to move from the accessible parking stall because I can't get into the vehicle unless unless the vehicle is parked in this accessible parking stall. Yeah, it's one of the the things that I, uh, drives me absolutely bonkers is seeing people do that. I actually take photos of them and tweet them out if I can because it's absolutely like you said, just f- five minutes for one person uh, might mean that uh, somebody like you or anybody that needs that spot uh, can't get it. Um, so that's something that happens now. Are you concerned that once this is all shifted to the municipalities, that might happen more? Well, well, the thing is, uh, to me, my my biggest concern is that. You know, the municipalities can't even handle regulation of the parking stalls. So, so now we, we might see uh, more situations like with a, with a renovation of Metro Town Mall, uh, for example, uh, the, the developers won't see that they're in the building code. They need an accessible parking stall. The city won't realize that it's their responsibility to make sure there's a parking stall uh, at, at the place of business. And then one just won't be uh, put in because, you know, it, they just won't think about it. Hmm. Are there places uh, right now that you avoid because they're difficult to, to, to maneuver in? <coughs> uh, you, you know, I, I'm just the kind of person who will, who will make it work. Uh, so, so I don't really avoid anything, but, you know, I, I just try to make it work. But there are definitely some places, like, like King George Skytrain Station, where there are two accessible parking stalls that are, you know, definitely difficult to manage uh, compared to other ones. Um, we spoke to, or uh, Global News spoke with uh, Stephanie Cadu. She's uh, the Liberal MLA for Surrey South. Uh, people will know she also uh, gets around in a wheelchair. She's concerned as well, saying that this is something should, that should stay provincially uh, managed rather than downloading it to, to the municipalities. So certainly uh, you aren't the only one that's raising awareness about this. Uh, I, I guess at this point, though, we wait until it's starting December 10th. We won't actually see uh, any changes or see if there are issues with this until sometime after that yeah and i'll have to promo uh, back on the beat uh this morning as as stephanie could do will be joining john daly uh, j- just to air her concerns because we've only only heard a little bit and she she has a lot more to say because y- you know th- this is definitely concerning uh because it just it needs to be regulated there needs to be one spot where you know all the cities can look to whether that's in the building code or whether that's in some new legislation uh, where the cities can say, okay, this is what we need to do, 
and and we need to make sure it gets done. All right, we'll be listening to that and following up on this for sure. Uh, ben, thank you so much. We will see you a bit later. Thanks, Joe. We uh, talk a lot about real estate on this uh, program, but this is a story with a bit of a different twist to it. Still involves real estate in Metro Vancouver, but how uh, the high price of real estate is actually uh, in it has actually helped another community, and that is because of the generosity of a, a realtor. And uh, let's get right to it. Michelle Yu joins us on the line, a Vancouver realtor. Michelle, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, how are you? Uh, excellent. How are you? Very, very good. Thank you. Very, very good to hear. Uh, we also have Don McQuaid on the line. He is a director at Wor- the World Housing Organization. Don, thanks as well to you for being here. Uh, thanks for having us on, Jill. Well, let's start with Michelle, because that's uh, where the story begins. We'll get to uh, what's happened with this money. But Michelle, you've been a realtor, uh, I believe it's uh, since 1994. Uh, you recently, though, uh, after a sale in May, uh, decided to donate uh, your commission. Tell us exactly uh, how things unfolded. Sure. I actually so excited to have um, this happening to me since I'm in the business for almost 25 years. And this is a very excited ex- experience I have gone through, and I'm so happy I can achieve that. And um, and also, I once I sold this property, I can have all the my money given to the people who really in need, and I can sold one home, I can build their almost ten family there. So this is something that I'm so like. Um, excited to to deliver my message to them and what inspired you to do this um actually this uh, world housing things is um introduced by one of my lawyer friend friend richard bell and um and he showed me some of the video and when i saw the video and i saw um a mother a new, a new, a newborn baby sleeping on her chest, holding her on her chest, sleeping on the ground, and I feel that it's so touched because um, we are so lucky in here in Vancouver. People came to the open houses; they just shop around houses, and um, the people living there in the slum that they just looking for a cover for their kids. So that really inspired me to really pay more efforts to help them. All right. And Don, I'll bring you in now. So Michelle donated the commission off of one of her sales, the sale of a, a fancy house on the west side, I believe it was. So where did that money go? That money is going to a community in El Salvador, and it will literally build 10 homes and house. Generally, it's five people per home. So the impact is just incredible. Indeed. And I understand, too, uh, that uh, another uh, interesting part of this is we're, we're talking about 3D printing and the, the way that the homes are built as well is quite uh, innovative. This is something that's, that's new. It's, uh, our building partners have pioneered this technology. The very first 3D printed home, permitted 3D printed home, was built in uh, Austin, Texas this past year. Uh, and it got huge uh, following, and you might have seen it in on the social pages and social media. But uh, that was the prelim to us do, uh, refining this technology, and the money that Michelle is donating will go towards the very first 3D printed community, which will be in El Salvador, where 
Uh, she mentioned her friend Richard Bell and I just got back from El Salvador looking at the site where this community will be built. And we're looking to build 100 homes at a time down there, 3D. And Michelle, what what is your response so when you see this, when you see what your donation by giving up the commission on this one sale, when you actually see the 3D models and you see how things are changing? Yeah, that's what I really want to see from my eyes. So I, I really um, plan that next year when they do that, I want to bring my whole family with my children to really see how it goes. And then I can see how happy that people can receiving our money can help them to build a family there, build a home there. So I think this is something I really want to go there and see. And are you encouraging other realtors or have you had any response from other uh, realtors or real estate agents that are interested in doing the same? Yes, I will find out this is very rewarding when, when you're putting like, your effort to do the open house, not just helping the seller. At the same time, you're helping other people who are really in need. So I really want them to not just, uh, just for me, I'm not just want to donate money directly. I want to donate my time as well. So I want to inspire more of realtors, which is they already established themselves and can, can do the same thing. They can just pick one of the listing from what they have for the whole year, and then they can donate all the money um, um, to their person that they who really need. So I encourage them to do the same thing. You will, you, you will, you will feel very rewarding. And Don, you mentioned as well that, that this, this one particular donation it can build 10 homes, a family in each home. What else does it do for the community as far as once the homes are built to helping people and move on from there? Well, it's the, it's the marker for social change. We make sure that our building partners, we actually build in six different countries. We've built over 600 homes through World Housing, which is based right here in Vancouver. And it's really been designed to help the real estate industry give back, give them a platform to give back. So Michelle is our great ambassador and a great model for doing this. But we also make sure that our partners on the ground in these countries have both health, education, community support, and housing is just one of the components that allow them to change their lives. And that's the biggest thing is to be able to have a locking door and be able to have safety and security. And, and, and that's our mission, really our goal, provide this. All right. And, and Michelle, you mentioned, too, uh, that uh, you'll be watching this and watching as things unfold in El Salvador. Uh, any other plans uh, to be involved or, or to continue on uh, with, uh, with giving back to the community? Yeah, it's also that um, we, through the World Housing, as I said, I can make a big difference to different to these families and also give them the safety and security of home. I definitely will continuously doing that every year. And um, I hope that um, more of people following. And then we also will we inspire many of our uh, uh, business partner and all other um, related uh, real estate business in Vancouver that they can be um, doing the same. And I hope the whole world can be um, all like, uh, well. All right. And Don, last word to you as well. Just how much of a difference does it or how much does it show uh, what a difference one person can make? How much does it show? Um, I mean, it's uh, you have to go there to see it or you don't have to go there to see it. But it's amazing when you do to see the, the families and the difference that you can make. 
I've seen it in Cambodia and the Philippines in Colombia, and it is so inspiring. And I, it should be noted too that 100% of Michelle's funds will be going into the ground, just like your programs at CKNW. 100% of the money that she raised will go to building homes. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. But thanks to both of you so much for coming on and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having us, Jill. Thank you so much, Jill.